are in a new year and a new theme for this year, one that I feel like is really important. I don't know anybody that just wants to get by. I don't know anyone who does. All of us have been blessed. Whether we acknowledge that or not, every person in this room has been blessed. I wish I could hear an amen. And if you are one of those who know you've been blessed, you ought to say so. If for no other reason you are blessed because you have life and you're not in the mortuary today. I'd rather be here than I would in the finest hospital in this city. You're blessed because you have air to breathe and you have food and shelter. God's not charging you for rent to live in his world. Most of us have been blessed to have families, a job, a car, and other things in life. But all of us, I'm talking about we who have been blessed now, have seen people who have been extraordinarily blessed. I think of Ruth who, when she was gleaning in the field of Boaz, Ruth was from Moab and Naomi and her husband had moved there and had two sons. One of them married this girl, Ruth. And then Naomi's husband and two sons both died and she went back home to uh, Bethlehem out of the land of Moab. And when she left, Arpha, one of the daughters-in-law, said, okay, I see you, mom-in-law. And Ruth said, I'm going with you. Don't ask me to stay home. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. I'm going to go with you. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. They got to Bethlehem, and they didn't have a social welfare program to help people in that day other than there were provisions made for those who raised grain, and there were two things that, that they did to help the poor. One was when you harvested, you did not harvest everything in your field. Well, it's like where they turn the combines when they're, they're harvesting rice or soybeans or maize or something. You don't get right up against the fence. You can't. You don't want to tear up your equipment, and it would leave things growing, fruit growing, as it were, wheat, grain, whatever, and then you would also drop some, the grain that had been harvested. It'd be, if you've ever been through a rice field, after it's been reaped, there's rice all over the ground. And so the gleaners were permitted to go in, the poor, and they could pick up everything that had fallen. And the farmers, God's law actually forbid them from going back into the fields and picking up what had been left or harvesting along the fence rows and so forth. God said, you leave that for the poor. Second thing they were required to do is they were required to give offerings and bless the poor. If they were people that were landed, titled, uh, held title deeds to land and property, they would give an offering to, to help the poor. We do that all the time here. We're helping people constantly. We can't pay everybody's bills, but we give food away, do all kind of things to help people throughout the year, helping incarcerated prisoners, fam the families of those prisoners, different things that we do. That's a responsibility of the church. Even though we're blessed, there are people in our society that are not. Ruth goes out now because they need some food, and she goes out into the field and happens to go to the field of Boaz, who was one of Naomi's distant cousins, and they begin to reap, they, she begins to pick up grain in the field, and Boaz sees her, and something, destiny, walks into uh, his life at that moment, and he feels a connection, doesn't even realize that as a near kinsman, he's supposed to be taking care of her, and that and what happens is, is that, that, that she's picking up this grain and Boaz whispers to the young men that are harvesting, leave handfuls on purpose, double handfuls all along the way for her to pick up. And she went home that evening and when Naomi saw the grain she carried, she said, my lands, what happened? You have been blessed today. And it blew her mind. I mean, just blew Naomi's mind. And whenever she asked Ruth where she had been. She said, I've been in the, the field of this man named Boaz. And Naomi said, that was God. And then they, she goes back. And before it's over with, here's my point. Naomi recognized Ruth had been blessed. But before the story is over and the providence of God, Ruth marries Boaz and she goes from just being blessed to being the owner of the field now. And that's extraordinarily blessed. She's not looking for a handout. She's now able to help others. You see what I'm talking about? 
The theme for this year is living the extraordinarily blessed life. You can't listen to all this talk that's going on about the economy and and you get fearful and afraid. That's the problem with negative news. It makes you afraid. Next thing you know, you'll stop giving and you'll close heaven over your life. Amen. I always encourage people that are in the middle of a crisis. There's several ways you can get out of it. You can pray your way out. You can worship your way out. You can give your way out. Amen. You sure can. And remember that. And I'm in a new series also. The theme for this year is living the extraordinarily blessed life. But the series I'm in, this is the third week, and the series is planted, fruitful, and flourishing. I've read to you the verse that that you'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water if you delight in the law of the Lord and do those things that that John, that uh, Psalms 1 talks about. Last week, I talked about the need to stay by the river, and I mentioned Little Rodney, Mississippi. The, it was the most significant town between New Orleans and St. Louis, Missouri, until the Mississippi River changed course, and now it is literally a ghost town. You don't stay with your roots in the river. You will wither and die. But there's a, a place beyond that, and that's the one Jesus is talking about. In this feast where they have been fed, that is taking place today, they had been fasting this religious, this religious festival that was going on. Everybody's thirsty, and, and this is what the priest would do. And he would cry out, everyone that thirsts, come let him drink of the waters of life. And he'd take a cup of water and pour it out on the ground. That's literally what the priest would do as part of the ceremony. Jesus borrows that word, those words and say, if you thirst, let him come. Any man thirst, let him come to me. And let him drink of the waters of life freely. And if you believe on me, he said, as the scripture has said, out of your heart, uh, one translation says innermost being. King James says out of his belly. It means from within. Will flow rivers, not a river, but rivers of living water. And this spake he of the spirit that those that uh, believe on him would receive. And Jesus said, you have to believe on me as the scripture has said. One of the problems of the church world today, I met with a businessman last evening who was, who, in the course of our, our conversation and meeting, he asked me, what do you think of the church and culture today? And I, I asked him to explain that question a little bit more. I said, do you mean the culture within the church or the culture at large? He said, the culture at large. I, I said, I think we have serious problems. The church is no longer affecting the culture at large. Instead, we're trying to please the culture of society. We're afraid to be who we are, and we want to gain their acceptance, and we're more worried about that than we are God's acceptance. And that's why you, uh, things like having godly people in office is really important, and godly people in different positions. I've always said your greatest gift is not your gift. It's the gift your gift produces when you develop and perfect your gift. For example, LeBron James has a gift, man. The guy can flat play hoops, and he's the best <clears throat> there is out there. But that's not his ultimate gift. His ultimate gift is the influence that buys and purchases for him. He can speak to people that have never listened to a thing I say, but because he's the best there is in the world, one of the very best, people will listen to him. He's, he can talk to young people in a way I never could. And your gift is not to sing. It's not to... Uh, to make music or act or or to make money or all of that. That's, that's one of your gifts. But your greatest gift is the influence that purchases for you. It gives you a voice. And uh, I, I think that we have to be active uh, in the world and use our voice instead of being content to be a candle under a bushel. Can I hear somebody say amen? And so you got to obey the, believe on Jesus and obey as the scripture has said. You can't take this politically correct thing, oh, I believe all ways lead to heaven, you know, and all, every path leads to God and, and all of that. And I love Jesus, but I love this too and, and all of that. No, if it's in the book, you got to go by the book. And Jesus is saying, if you want to live the extraordinarily blessed life, get that cultural nonsense out of your head. Love everybody. Don't reject people. But you need to be smart enough to realize which one of those strategies is going to work. And the strategy that will make you extraordinarily blessed is to believe on Jesus the way the Scripture has said. 
Not the way somebody's telling you right now you need to believe on him. Amen. Don't even listen to just me. If it's not in the book, you don't need to listen to me. Amen. You hear what I'm saying? And the people that Jesus was talking to would have understood what he meant when he said, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. We don't. Uh, here in Texas, especially East Texas, maybe West Texas, they would better appreciate this if they stopped and considered the context. But in the Middle East, they would have understood what Jesus meant. And instead instead of just being planted by the river, Jesus says, you're going to have the river flowing through you. It's one thing to be planted by the river. It's another thing to be planted for purpose and have the river flowing through you to be a conduit through which the river flows. One thing to have the river flow beside you, it's another thing to have the river flow through you. I wish I had an amen. And in California, they would understand that where a lot of our fruit and and, uh, nuts and vegetables and thin produce comes from, Israel's the same way. Israel is an island of prosperity in the middle of an an ocean of poverty and and desert-like terrain. And when Jerry and I first visited Israel many years ago, we first had done this whole thing. We'd gone through Syria, Egypt, uh, Jordan, some other places. And we came to Jordan's River. And some of the folk wanted to be baptized that were on the tour. This is way back in like 1976 through 78, somewhere through there. And I've been there many times since then. But you, you come to the Jordan's River, and we stopped, and people wanted to be baptized there because that's where Christ was baptized. And then we went on. We had been in all of these countries that were desert, and it was dry, and it was barren. And we crossed over into Israel, and I was amazed because all of a sudden there are orchards, and there are vineyards, and there are fields of produce and grain and forms and kibbutzes, which are collective forms. And And the Israelis pioneered and developed a technique of irrigation where they used they used water vapor. A little they they put a little thing over a plant where it would capture the water vapor instead of just being evaporated into the sun. They're they're experts at surviving in the desert. And but back in Jesus' day, those rivers were what they depended upon to bring life to their forms and their communities and and the Jordan River in particular, when Jesus said, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water, everybody right away thought of Jordan River and the life it brought to their desert. Without that river, that, it would have been nothing but dry and barren. But here's the thing. Jordan River rolls on further south. And that mighty river that brings life to the desert there empties into something called the Dead Sea. And I've been there. The Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth. It is 1,404 feet below sea level. It has no outlet. The Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea receives it, and it has nowhere else to go because it is the lowest place, as I said, on earth. There are other names for the Dead Sea. They call it the Salt Sea, for example, in the Bible. It's known by that name. It's called the Sea of Death. It's commonly called that as well. There is no life in the Dead Sea. It doesn't produce fish. There's nothing swimming in it. When we went there uh, in the past, what they tell us, the guides, a lot of people want to get out in the water. It is 35% mineral content. 35% mineral content. You can't sink. People that think they're made of lead and when they get in the water, they go right to the bottom. They're delighted. They put on their swimming costumes, get out there, and they can't sink if they tried. Amen. They float. And it's astonishing. But the guide always says, if you have any cuts, don't get in the water. The reason is, is it will feel like you, if you've got a cut on your hand, it will feel like you stuck your hand inside of an oven. It will, it will feel like you're on fire. And they said, whatever you do, don't get the water in your eyes because the mineral content is so intense. It will literally burn a hole through your eye and you will be blind. The Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because it is dead. Everywhere else that river flows, it's bringing life. But when it gets to the Dead Sea, it is dead because it has no outlet. 
I want to talk to you today about understanding that you can't be a dead sea. The river's got to flow through you, not end up in you. Amen. And a lot of people are praying, praying, Lord, bless me. I want to be extraordinarily blessed so I can have nice cars and houses and prestige and position and fame and money and do everything I want to do. Uh-uh. God's not obligated to bless that perspective because he knows it will turn you into a dead sea. Amen. You see, you can do one of three things with your life. You can waste it, you can spend it, or you can invest it. A life is wasted when you live for yourself and for your own fulfillment and pleasure. But a life is spent when it is dedicated to the accomplishment of a goal, such as building a career, a business, or a family, or mastering a sport, or a hobby. You, that's, that's spending your life. The hours you invest in that are spin, spent toward the achievement of, a, of an objective. Nothing wrong with that either. But the third level is where we're going to go today, and that is not to just waste your life and not to just spend it, but when you invest your life is when you live your life for God and what matters to Him. And what matters to God is others, and that could be your family and includes them certainly. It includes the loss, the suffering, the world, the church you're a part of, the community you live in. And so you're going to do one of these three things, and I would want to ask you, which one are you doing? Are you wasting your life, living for yourself? Number two, are you spending your life trying to build careers and be successful and so forth, family, whatever? Or number three, are you investing your life? Of these three, you need to understand the degree of fulfillment is different at every level. And the person, for example, who is least happy of those three is the one who is wasting their life and pursuing pleasure and materialism. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Did you hear that? Passing pleasures of sin. If you are living for pleasure, it is passing. It's not permanent. Other translations say fleeting pleasures of sin. King James says to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. That's all they last, folks. There is temporary pleasure in some types of sin. I want you to know that. Not all types. Some types of sin will get you in trouble in a hurry. Amen. They're not even fun. Amen. But there are other types I would lie to you and be deceiving you if I said they're not fun for the moment. But I have to be very candid with you and tell you the pleasure only lasts for a little while. And then you have to deal with the pain that results from what you just did. Both to you, you have to deal with the pain in you and, and the pain in those you love. And you have to try to find something else to now excite and stim stimulate the senses because that gets old. And, and if you want to know the truth, you'll end up right, if, if that's your life, you're going to end up exactly where B.B. King, one of the most famous musicians of all times, talks about uh, us being. Play it if you would. This is where you'll be. That's enough. You're going to be sitting in your corner saying, the thrill is gone. Thrill is gone away. Oh, baby, the thrill is gone. That's where you're going to end up. I don't know anybody on, in that life that doesn't sooner or later wake up and the thrill is gone. The most unhappy people in the world are those who live for pleasure. They're wasting their life 
But the person who spends their life, who has dedicated their life to building a career or a business or some other objective, I have to be equally honest with you and tell you that person can achieve a sense of fulfillment and accomplishment that comes from having set a goal, worked hard to achieve it, and then mastered it. And there is a feeling of, of accomplishment upon doing that. Whether that's a business, it's making money, whatever your goal is, you can arrive. And I, I show you that even in the Bible, Daniel 4 and 30. The king of Babylon set out to build a great empire and he succeeded. And then one day he said this, the king spoke saying, is not this the great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. He was feeling pretty good about his sense of accomplishment. He built the greatest empire that existed in the world and the greatest city, the city of Babylon in the ancient world. Babylon was the, the greatest city ever, ever, ever established. And he's, he was feeling good. But then the rug got yanked out from underneath him. Because you see, once you've been there and you've achieved your goals and objectives, you know what you find out? That fulfillment and happiness are not the same thing. I wish I could hear an amen. Oh, you say, I've, uh, Pastor, have you ever counseled anybody that's been in the pleasure thing that destroyed their life and ruined the day they did? Oh, yeah. Have you ever counseled anybody that was what we call successful and then looked around and said, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Oh, yeah, again. I've counseled lots of people that we would call successful because what most of us in this room have not learned is that things and success in this world do not equal happiness. They do not equal fulfillment. No, they don't. No, they don't. In fact, you think that if you can get the right car, the right money, the right job, the right position, the right trophy wife, husband, you know, all of that, you're going to be at, at the top. You're going to be fulfilled. No, no. I want to tell you, you don't own anything in this life. In fact, you find out all that stuff you think you own really owns you. All those cars say, change my all, rotate my tires. Fix my bumper. Yes, they do. Change my light bulb. Those houses, you know what they say? Paint me. Mow my grass. Trim my shrubs. Fix my leaky roof. My plumbing is overflowing and clogged up. You don't own anything. It owns you. Amen. There's a measure of satisfaction and achieving an objective, but don't think that that is the ultimate in fulfillment. Of all the things you can do with your life, there is no comparison with the fulfillment that comes from investing your life. You can waste your life, you can spend your life, but it's when you invest your life that you make your life count. When you invest your life, you need to search for the right thing to invest it in. You want to make sure a good investment grows in worth as it gains interest on the principal. And when you invest your life, you want your happiness to grow also. I'll go on beyond that. A person who wastes their life is just surviving. That guy that's out there in sin, just surviving. He's just getting by, treading water. That's a prodigal son who finds himself in the pig pen. And then, secondly, the person who spends themselves in pursuit of an objective is what we call probably in the course of their life successful. Or they'll get to that place that we'll call them that. But they're empty on the inside. This is the rich man that says, I'll tear down my barns and build greater. I'm successful. And a voice says, you fool. You're going to die tonight. You didn't know that. Then what's going to happen with you? Amen. You can't carry that stuff to eternity with you. But the person that invests their life is different in this regard. When you invest your life, you come to find peace within yourself. You come to the point that you develop significance. And significance is the greatest longing of all of mankind. You become like Paul. You can say, I finished my course. I've kept the faith. I was true to what mattered. 
You don't need then to look around and say, oh, oh, my life is almost gone. I, I, I don't know what to do. I, 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 I haven't really lived. I, I just, my God, somebody help me. I need more time. No, Paul said, I'm ready to go. I finished my course. He was satisfied with the life that he lived. The greatest longing of the human heart is to find significance and a reason for our existence and the meaning for life is the ultimate quest of all of mankind. People are searching for life. Amen. In Isaiah 49, God speaks to Isaiah about the secret of living an extraordinarily blessed life. Of being where the river flows through you rather than just being content to be planted by the river. Planted, yes, but planted for purpose. You want to be planted in one place where God can bless you and the river flow through you. Now, I meet a lot of people in churches, as you know. I speak a lot in different churches. And even in ministry, I meet a lot of people that fall into this category. They're discouraged. I meet ministers all the time that are what they call burned out, discouraged. I meet saints that are discouraged. My question always in my mind is how can anybody be discouraged when they're part of the greatest thing going on in the whole world right now? Amen. How can anyone feel like their life is going nowhere if you're in the kingdom of God? And then I look at it and I see that there's a reason they feel that way. Their vision is too small. I want to talk to some of you that are here, a part of the church, but your vision is small. And as a result, you are feeling empty on the inside, not as though you're making your life matter and count, and you're, you're, you're frustrated, you're even discouraged. If you're wasting your life in sin and pleasure or just spending your life to accomplish success, of course you're going to face discouragement when you find out those two things don't work. And like B.B. said, the thrill is gone. But whenever you are living your life as a conduit through which the river flows, I want you to understand, ladies and gentlemen, that's a different level of life altogether. Amen. But why do people become discouraged? Isaiah 49 Verses 1 through 9, I'll begin with 1 through 3. Isaiah begins to talk to the people of Israel. And he says, listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. Well, this is heavy stuff. Isaiah is saying, I'm called of God. I'm a man of destiny. Hand of God is on my life. God knows me by my name. From my mother's womb, I've come into this world with a purpose. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. God, he's literally saying, I'm an instrument in the hands of God. I've come into this world for a purpose, a reason. I'm here with a destiny. And he says, God said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But in verse 4, he confesses to being discouraged. Isaiah 49 and 4, then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work is with God I mean, God sees what I'm doing. I mean, I'm doing the right stuff. I'm not out there wasting my life. I'm not even spending my life. I'm investing it. But God, I have to tell you, I feel discouraged. I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for, for nothing. What's going on that I'm not feeling fulfilled? In verses 5 and 6, God tells him why he's discouraged. He says that you've been focusing on all of your attention on my people in this little nation of Israel. And really, I've called you to bigger things than what you're doing. My vision for you is bigger than your vision for yourself. Amen. And you're unhappy because you're not doing what I've called you to do. Isaiah 49, watch this now, verse 5 through 6. And the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant. 
to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel's gathered to him for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. Verse 6, indeed he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Did you just catch that? It's too little. Your vision is too small. I've not just called you to do this little old thing here. I've called you to be a light to the Gentiles. And the reason you're unhappy is your vision isn't big enough yet. Amen. And Isaiah 49 and 7 through 9, God goes on to tell him what it is that he's called to do. Thus says the Lord, the, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful. This, oh, I feel the anointing kicking in. The Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. I have a word for this church today. God has chosen you. God's hand is on your life. Amen. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Yes, I heard somebody say, he's talking about everybody else. Not just everybody else, I'm talking to you too. You were formed by God. You were created by God. God knows your name. Amen. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. This past Sunday night, Lloyd called, Eddie, are you in this service, Eddie and Lamisha? I, I don't know. They'll, they'll be in the 1115. They sometimes come to this one, but they'll be in the 1115 today. They alternate sometimes. Eddie and Lamisha, he called Edward by name, called him by name. Lloyd did last Sunday night, and when he came up and his wife came up, Eddie brought his wife, Lamisha, and Lloyd said, turned to Lamisha and said, I see you counting money. I don't know what your job is, but you're, you're, you're counting money. You, you know she had just gotten a promotion, and I mean like two weeks ago, and was made head of her department, and she's in accounting. She counts the money, and she sent me a picture of her at work the next day, seated by her vault, ba balancing her vault. Was... Amen. I'm talking, now, what, what would your, your takeaway be from that? I'm talking to you about something real. i tell you what it did. They left that, that service that night, and she communicated with me and the, the, the next day in a text message and said, we needed a word. And they'd just gone through a challenge recently, and, and she said, that blessed us. I, because, you see, God showed them, I know who you are. And that's what happens. A gift is not used to, to expose people like I've seen some try to do and manipulate congregations or people. Uh, this says the Lord, I see you in your sin. Well, of course he sees every one of us in our... Hello, he saw you in the shower this morning too. And, you know? Amen, amen. But God tells him, tells. Isaiah, the Holy One of Israel, thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages that you may say to the prisoners, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. What a word. One of the words Lloyd gave last Sunday night, he said, there's, I don't know what's going on here, and I hadn't told him a word. He said, there's a revival breaking out in the prisons. What he didn't know is we had different ones in that week in, in prisons. Tony, are you here? Tony Bass? And, and uh, he's a, right over there. Are you wait, stand up, Tony. I want him to see you. He's one of our board members. Tony is in prison ministry. Do you know this past Saturday and Sunday... They were in revival in the prisons and had over 50 come forward to receive Christ. Amen. <laughs> Lloyd had no idea. Another one of our young couples uh, were, were in prison ministry this weekend. They had a breakthrough this weekend. Lloyd had no idea. You know what that does? That's a confirmation. Thank you, Tony, that God sees what you're doing. Amen. Boy, when the river is flowing through you, it's a whole lot better than being a dead sea, saying, God, give me more. I want blessings. And God said, you're already dying because I've blessed you with so much. 
You don't have an outlet. Amen. Amen. And God told Isaiah, your vision is too small. I would say that most discouragement in a church is because our vision is too small. Amen. We don't want to give. Our vision is too small because all we're concerned about is our family. And that's why only 4% of Christians tithe right now. Let me be a pastor. You're closing heaven over your life is what you're doing. What was meant to be a river is becoming a sea that is dying. Amen. 35% salt. Nothing can live in it. Don't get it in your eye to burn a hole right through your eyeball. That's what's happening with a lot of, of saints. Same thing is happening with the truth and the word that we get. We're not planted in purpose. And so how do you discover and become planted for purpose? Mark Twain famously once said, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you figure out why. Most people don't know why they're here. First, you must want to know God's purpose for your life. How do you find it? you got to want to know it. You've got to take the time to seek God. You've got to hunger for your purpose. You've got to want to know why you were born, and you've got to want to know it more than anything. I love this text in 2 Samuel 7 and 18, where King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? I wonder if there's anybody in this house that can look back over their life and say, God, you brought me from a mighty long ways. Why? Did anybody in this building come from a family that's still lost? Anybody here, some of the guys you used to go to school with, with your classmates, they're lost? Anybody here, some of the people you used to run with are now in eternity without God? Oh, yeah, if that happened to me. The drummer in the band I was a part of when I was a, just a kid, great and talented drummer, Jimmy Lejeune, hooked on drugs, died right here in Houston, Texas. I used to play in nightclubs. I was raised in church. And one night we walked out of a gig. The gig ended carrying our instruments. Somebody was walking by, and they stopped to talk to us for a minute. And the guy was talking, and he looked at me, and he said, who are you? He said, there's something different about you. You don't even belong in this place right here. I mean, it's bad when you can't even be a good sinner and fit in. You know what I mean? And, and I didn't fit in. And I told the guy, I don't want to hear none of that. And, and, and the guy started talking about God. And I said, you take that stuff and get out of here. I, and Jimmy turned to me and said, Rich, I've never heard that before. Let him tell. I said, no, Jimmy, I don't want to hear it. I was running from that little church I'd been raised in that ran 30 people. And I was miserable. And they had nothing going on for young people. And I nearly, I, I was dying in that little church. I didn't, I didn't want what this guy had to say. I thought that's all church consisted of. And that guy walked off. And do you know it wasn't long after that till Jimmy Lejeune died of a drug overdose right here in this city of Houston, Texas. I've got friends that are in eternity without God. And you know what I do every once in a while? I just do what David did. And I just stop and look up and say, why me, God? Why me? Why were you so good to me? <clears throat> Ask God why you are here. David realized that God had elevated him and blessed him so extraordinarily for a purpose. And now he's wanting to know what is that purpose. You see, Satan's strategy all along has been to make you believe that if you serve God, it's drab, it's dull, it's boring. Uh-uh. No, you'll waste your life if you don't serve God. Amen. And I'll tell you something. You know, sometimes you look at people that are believers and they're in the middle of the will of God and they're going through a crisis. Do you ever go through a crisis, Pastor? And you're in the will of God? Oh, yes. And you look around. I, I keep telling you this. You notice there are no streets paved with gold here. This is not heaven. This is a fallen world ruled by a fallen Lord. This, is, this will be as close to hell as you will ever get to as a child of God right here. Amen. And in this cursed world, you're going to go through some stuff. But here's the thing. On the outside, you can look and say, oh, I, I can't ask God for his will for my life because we get all this stuff twisted. It's all twisted. The devil's twisted it all up. 
And we think if we ask God for his will, it's going to, we're going to have to do something crazy like quit our job, sell our house, give away our bank account to the church, and go be a missionary in Borneo somewhere. Amen. Among headhunters, no less. And if you're single, I can't, God's going to call me to be celibate the rest of my life. I can't, you know, I can't. No, I can't say yes to God. No, let me tell you, that's a lie of the devil. Your will and God's will runs on parallel tracks. It's not the what that God is concerned about in your life. It's the who. It's the ownership question. Abraham's will for his life was the same as God's will. He wanted a son. The problem was ownership. That's why God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, and go offer him for a sacrifice. It's the ownership question. When you ask God for his will for your life, he's not going to make you go against your own desire. It's not going to all of a sudden make you, okay, God, I, I don't want to, but it's all right. I'll go and be miserable the rest of my life just because you asked me to. No, uh-uh. You're going to be in the river. The river's flowing through you. And when the river's flowing through you, you're going to have some test, and the enemy will come against you. But you know what? You don't even notice it. You don't. You're having so much fun. People ask me all the time, Pastor, you enjoying your life? I'm loving my life. I'm having the time of my life. Now, look, I'll tell you something. I fly so much on airplanes, and it's usually the same airplanes, KLM. They've got six or 7,000 flight crew around the world. And do you know I've seen most of them? And I fly with most of them. I go on the plane like I did yesterday in Amsterdam. And you know what they say? Hey, Dr. Hurd, how are you? I'm serious. Yesterday, the lady in, in the cabin that I was in, she knew me. There, there are different cabins throughout the plane, but the one serving, uh, the attendant serving where I was seated with others, she, she knew me by name. The person knew me by name. Came around. I'd flown with her out of Houston not long ago. Flown with all of them a number of times. And she said, you're here again. I usually fly in on Saturday so, and out on Sunday. So she said, you leaving with us tomorrow like you usually do? I said, no, I'm leaving on Monday this time. And, and they both asked me the same question. When you going, don't, first they asked the question, don't you ever get tired of this? And I said, the, the travel I got tired of years ago. What you folks don't stop sometimes to realize is I was an evangelist 19 years before I came here. That's all I did was travel. I got tired of the travel part of it long ago. I had people walk up to me and say, you sure are lucky. You get to fly and travel. And I want to say, God, just look that other way for just one minute while I fix this little misperception. Amen. Look. I told you I've been through 24 surgeries and accidents and multiple fusions and I walk like I'm Chester and Gunsmoke, you know, and I've got, I've got so much going on, pain every day that I live. And they ask me, oh, when are you going to quit? And you know what I said? I said, I don't think I ever will. I'm having too much fun. I'm, I'm loving what I do. Amen. I'm having the time of my life. There's nothing I'd rather do than pastor this church and be involved in what God's called me to be. Now, looking at it from the outside, you can say, boy, that's hard. And I say, really? As much fun as I'm having? That's hard. Uh, it's not hard. It's easy. When Sir Edmund Hillary climbed Mount Everest, that was hard. You've seen some of those films? Wind, storms can blow in 120 miles an hour. Ice, snow, plunging temperatures, 80 degrees below zero, more. Frostbite, all of that, loose toes, fingers, nose, all of that going on. Avalanches and everything else. And when he got back down, they said, was it hard? He said, yeah, hardest thing I've ever done. And they said, what did you think about it? He said, it's the most fun I've ever had in my life. In fact, I want to go back again. I have a friend in Nairobi, Kenya, that I've known for many years, almost 20 years now. He's a mountain climber. He climbed K2. Y'all ever heard of K2? That's one of the mountains in the Himalayas, not far from Everest. One of the tallest, roughest mountains to climb in the entire world. He was in an avalanche coming down. Got swept up in that avalanche, dropped into a crevasse, and covered up with snow. And his leg was broken. He managed to climb out by himself. Come down the mountain. The other persons that were with him were killed. 
It, I said, what happened? He said, I climbed out. There was a pocket of air. I climbed out. I hobbled down the mountain with a broke leg. Took him over two days to do it. And I said, man, that was hard. He said, I can't wait to go back. He said, I've already applied for a permit to climb Everest. You see, when you're doing what you're called to do, the mountain you're climbing, everybody else says, woo, no way. And you say, yes way. That's my mountain that's got my name on it. And you're having fun while everybody else is saying, whoo. And when you're in the middle of the will of God and the river's flowing through you, what stymies everybody else inspires you. It energizes you. I'm talking to somebody right now out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You've got to want it. I'm closing. Second thing is you've got to get along with God. If you're going to find what God's purpose is for your life, get along with God. You've got to want it, but you've got to get along with God. We are altogether too distracted in today's society to know why we're here, and the result has been wholesale and wanton emptiness. Discouragement everywhere you turn. And people are wondering, why am I even alive? You know why? Because Nielsen, who does the ratings and monitors the number of viewers for TV shows, says now the average American spends over 35 hours a week watching TV, which means some of you are spending way over 35 because I only spend one hour a week. So you're making up for my time. Amen. You are in trouble. Amen. And you got this going on, and you got that going on, and you got all of the, the games and sports and and when do you ever find time to discover why you're here? That's one reason I love the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is written collectively by David, who wrote most of them, Asap, who was a worship leader, Moses, and maybe some others. And all of them, there's this one thing you notice about the Psalms. Look at Psalms 91, attributed to Moses. Possibly David wrote it, but some scholars say Moses. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. David begins many of the Psalms as Moses and as Asaph did as well by praying and talking to God. You get to the end of the chapter, though, it's not the psalmist talking anymore is now God talking to the psalmist. And he says, I will send my angels to bear you up in their hands lest you dash your foot against a stone. A thousand will fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand. It shall not come. Nigh thee. I claim that over this church this year. It's not coming near your family. Destruction that wastes at noonday is not going to touch your life. Why? Because you have laid, made the Lord most high your refuge and your shield. Amen. Amen. And when you pray, you get alone. You just talk to God. You hunger to hear from him. You talk to him, and then don't get up and leave when you get finished with your prayer list. Sit there. Let him talk to you. God's got more to say to you than you do to him. I want to also say you've got to ask to discover the purpose of something. Do not ask the object what its purpose is. Go out and stand by my car and say, why are you here? And it's not going to answer you. Ask his pulpit, why are you there? It's not going to answer you. The created thing is the last thing to know why the creator of the thing created it. What you need to do is go to the guy that designed it. And in this case, that's God. Why don't we have great vision and do great things for God? We always start out with a small vision. And then our vision gets plummeled and knocked around and knocked out of us. We set out to change the world. And next thing you know, we're bombarded by 10,000 subliminal messages every single day telling us what we're supposed to be doing with our life. Madison Avenue and all these others. This is what you should do. This is what's acceptable. What kind of cologne to wear, deodorant to wear, what kind of clothes to wear, what name brand, what kind of car to drive. And it... it, it Basically, you got folk out there that are paid big bucks to tell you how to live your life, and they don't know diddly about God. Amen. And what we should do is stop listening to let others tell us what our lives are about. Culture will tell you. Other people will tell you. And you know what happens? That's a mistake. Look, if you don't believe it's a mistake, look at this. Mary walks in, takes a back box of alabaster ointment, breaks it, pours it over Jesus, and even the disciples... Church folk 
got upset about that and said, that's not what you're supposed to do with that. Ah, that's a whole year's salary. Could have been used for something else. And in a statement attributed to Judas by, by St. John, Judas says, to what purpose is this waste? Amen. Matthew tells the story, but then John tells us it was actually not just the disciples. It was one specific disciple named Judas. I won't tell you what a waste is. It's not for you to pour yourself out in worship. It's for you to live your life alone without God. A young man that raises his family without God, talk to me about waste now. Talk to me about a wasted life now. Living for money, talk to me about wasted life. One reason some people struggle for resources, and I'm done. I've got one minute. One reason they struggle is because why should God give you resources and provisions when you don't have a vision? Provisions mean pro or for vision. We have a vision here. Continue to give toward the building program. Why? Because we have a vision. We want to build for the kingdom of God. And you know what God does? God releases provisions that are for vision. doesn't release provisions when there's no vision. Amen. Amen. I'm done. But you've also not only got to want it, You've not only got to get alone and get quiet where you can hear from God. You've not only got to ask. In fact, listen to this verse, and you'll see what I'm talking about. If you're going to discover your purpose in life, uh, listen to James. If you want to know what God wants you to do, ask him. And he will gladly tell you, for he is always ready to give a bountiful supply of wisdom to all who ask him. He will not resent it. That's James chapter 1. Amen. You need to know what God's doing. And for, I'm, did you put that verse up there, Robert? Where's that verse? I haven't seen that verse. i got to know it's in the Bible. Amen. I gave it to you in the notes, didn't I? Amen. I think so. Okay, number four, watch and listen. You ever notice how many times Jesus said, watch and pray? Watch and pray? Why did he say watch and pray? Watching for the enemy? No, that's not what that means. God often speaks in impressions and in word pictures. And he will show you a vision of what he wants you to do. You ever see yourself doing things that you haven't done yet? And you felt God in it? You know what a vision is? It's not some spooky thing. Ooh. Holy Ghost. Ghost. Get the word emphasis on ghost. That scares some people right there. Is in the house. Vision. The Holy Spirit is here today to speak to you.